Now I direct your attention to the Word of God, to the book of Samuel, which is really the book of First Kings in the Hebrew Bible. And it is telling us about the days of Israel between the period of the judges and the period of the kings. Eli and Samuel are the two characters that God uses during this transition period of about 40 years. And he is bringing some things to pass, and we've been looking at it chapter by chapter. So we continue with the narrative today. There's about three things here that you need to notice as we read. One is the battle. Watch for the war. See what you can learn about the war that's going on. And then the Ark of the Covenant. What is that? What does that mean? And then finally, the verdict upon these events. Ichabod, no glory. The glory is gone, it's departed. What does it mean to have the glory of God captured? Let's listen now to the words of the story. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped in Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here before Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. 
There's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attended her said, Do not be afraid, for you have a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, did you get the gist of the story? Horrible, horrible day in the life of Israel. Now, God had promised this day would come. He had told them over and over and over that this horrible day would come when the sons of Eli would be killed, and the house of Eli would be whittled down to a single heir, and then within one generation that heir would disappear. The priesthood in Eli's family would come to an end. But God hadn't really told them the details of how it would happen. When somebody says that somebody's going to die, you think, well, that's going to be their particular death. <laughs> They're going to die in a slaughter. And it's going to be a horrible slaughter for every reason. And it's going to be absolutely devastating to the people there's going to be a lot of people die, but more than that, there's going to be an absolute destruction of what made Israel Israel. The Bible says here, the word of Samuel came to Israel. Then there's a big break. And it says, and Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. The protocol in ancient battle was that you would consult with the prophet or the priest before you would go into battle. And the warriors and the generals would want to know kind of how is it going to go? Or even should we go up to war? Should we sue for peace? Or what, what should we do? And that may have happened in this case, but the scripture doesn't say that it does. It just said the word of the Lord came to Samuel. It didn't say what Samuel said. It didn't say that Samuel told him, the Lord's telling you all to go to battle, but I sort of think he did. Because this battle, like every battle, belongs to the Lord. And the Lord had a determinate end to this battle. And it was the awful, awful, punishment to Israel. And you saw the story there. They camped, they went up, they had a battle, they drew the lines, and they were fighting the Philistines. By the way, the Philistines were the major enemy of God's people during this era of time. Uh, the Philistines were not Canaanites. They had come from the Aegean Sea. They were seafaring people. They were kinmen to the Phoenicians who settled to the northern coast and the Philistines settled to the southern coast. And we still to this good day know about the Gaza Strip in Israel, Gaza was the main city-state closest to the, to, the, to the southern shore 
there of that land, the ancient land, and they spread inland and they had five great cities. In addition to Gaza, they had Gath, which was the town that Goliath was from. We may hear about him later on. And they had Ekron and Ashdod, and they had these, these cities of Gad that made five great cities. The Philistines were technologically more advanced than the Canaanite people were. They brought better technology. They were better smiths. That is, they could handle metal and they could fashion things. There was a time in which Israel was subservient to them because blacksmithing and metalworking was controlled in that region by the Philistines. And so the Israelites had to go up to the Philistines to get their swords sharpened. Imagine what kind of servile and vassal state Israel had become. It was bad enough that the Philistines had been oppressing them and moving toward oppressing them. But at least the Philistines had allowed them to live there in the hill country of Judea and up through Israel. And they had continued to have their life. The Israelites had continued to have their religion. They'd continued to have their free exercise of their, their property and their land holdings. They were free to marry and give in marry. And, have, and they had conducted all of their religious and social and economic affairs. They just always had this menace of the Philistines over them. But they went out to battle and they lost. Not only they lost, but they were routed. Not only were they routed, they were slaughtered. And so they come back. They said the troops came to the camp. The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's a good question to ask. <laughs> kind of a debriefing going on in the Pentagon. Well, what happened? Why did we lose this battle? And notice they know that all battles belong to the Lord. So they immediately knew the Lord had sovereignly allowed their defeat. Well, they didn't have to look very far for an answer. And the Bible says they didn't even seek the answer, didn't find the answer, and we'll see that. But the answer is found back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28. When they were going into the land and were going to begin to fight under Joshua, God had given them orders under Moses and Joshua how they were to proceed. And He had told them what to do and how they were to live. And in the end of Deuteronomy, there's a table of blessings and curses and there's a long list of them. God said, I'll bless you if you obey me and keep my commandments and follow me and walk in my statutes and continue to operate the way I want you to with the sacrificial system, making atonement for your sins, repenting of your sins, living a godly life. You'll be blessed in the land. But if you don't, you will be cursed. And listen to this particular stipulation out of God's law. Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a, a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for the birds of the air and the beast of the field, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. In other words, if you... Obey not the voice of the Lord your God to be careful to do all the commandments and the statues that I command you today. These curses shall come upon you and overtake you. There you have it. They had not repented of their sins. They had not gone forth 
as a godly force. They were used to succeeding in battle because God had gone before them and now they're fighting this war without the blessing of God. No wonder old Eli sat back there in the, in the uh, town of Shiloh shaking and trembling for the fear of God. He knew those guys were out there on thin ice with a blowtorch. They didn't have a whole lot of hope and he trembled. Not only that, their solution was not to call upon God and repent of their sins and come back to God and ask God to bestow His blessing and once again recognize the battle was in the hands of the Lord. They didn't do that at all. What did they do? The Bible says here that they said, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may be among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people went out and they brought the ark and when they bring the ark of the covenant, they brought along the two priests Eli's sons. In other words, they take everything with them. What a severe, horrible misuse of the sacred things. They took the most sacred artifact in Israel and was going to use it as magic. Oh, if I was a preacher, I'd stop right here and say, how many of us do not come to God on His terms. But then we go to God in prayer asking Him to bless and to honor and to grant and to bestow. The, the ark was a, was a good idea. <laughs> the ark had a pretty good history. The ark of the covenant, you remember, was that box. Not much bigger than this right area right here. Maybe not quite as big that was, had a slab of gold over it and two cherubim with wings coming up and, and then it was carved out of one piece of gold and then below it was acacia wood and inside that, inside that encasement were some valuable things and it was this ark that they had carried with them. You remember Jericho when they marched around? You remember they blew the trumpets and did all this stuff? They never fired a shot. The walls came tumbling down. Because it was the power of God in the ark. If there was anything that, that was a talisman, if there was anything that was magic, if there was anything that would elicit superstition in the people, it would certainly be the ark. The ark went before them and the Lord gave them the battle. So let's go get that ark and bring it with us for the battle. In that ark were some precious and sacred things. Three things, Aaron's rod, the tables of stone containing the commandments and the, an urn, a jar of the manna, the holy manna that God had sent to sustain His people. If there's ever things that symbolized power and miracle and life and blessing, it was the ark and its contents. Aaron's rod was in there. You remember Aaron's rod? That's the rod of God. In fact, there's some pretty good reason to believe that it was a single rod that Moses and Aaron shared because when Moses struck the rock, he went into the presence of God, that is, into the tabernacle to get the, to get the, the, the rod that was before the Lord. But at least Aaron's rod was an incredible. It was the rod that was used to, to perform miracles in Pharaoh's court. It was the rod that God had used to smite them with three of the ten plagues. It was the rod that they had used to elevate and hold over the Red Sea when it parted. It was the rod that at one time when there was a great rebellion in the camp and a, and a third of the camp 
rebelled against Moses and Aaron and God came to show His might. They, all of the heads of the clans and the tribes came with their staffs and their rods. You know, they were sheep herding people. They had rods and staffs and they put them out there and God gave life to one of those rods. It blossomed, it bloomed, it bore almonds, which is a symbol of God's blessing and life. That was Aaron's rod, and it was in that box. They had kept it all these years in that box. It was a great symbol, no, of not just supernatural power, but of authority. It was as close as they had in those days before a king. It was the closest thing they had to a scepter that the king would carry. In that ark was also the tablets of stone, the places where the finger of God had written the holy commandment and made a covenant with His people. An inscripturated, written down covenant that a superior, a Susan Rain, will make to an inferior, a vassal, and promise protection and blessing, but will also promise government and righteousness and rule, commandments, justice, that ark represented civil as well as spiritual authority and government. Inside that ark, there were those commandments. And also, there was an urn of the manna. <laughs> we know about the manna. This we'll partake of in just a moment is our emblem of the manna of God which comes down from heaven. The manna was what God gave them supernaturally to feed them and to keep them alive in that desert for a long time. The manna was that which God had provided and the scriptures are very clear that that manna was a perfect type of Christ who would be broken for us and who would sustain us in all of our ways. We pray, give us this day our daily bread implicit in that prayer is because we have subjected ourselves to the obedience and the love of salvation of Christ who gives us our eternal life. In Him is life. They were carrying around in that ark things that told them about God. Things that told Him about the Almighty. Things that moved them from being just simply in the world here and now and connected them to heaven, gave them something transcendent. In fact, the cherubim that came over, the angels that came over the ark on the, over the golden slab were considered several places in Scripture and in the Psalms and other places. It's the footstool of God's throne. In other words, they were under God's control, under God's command, under God's protection, under God's rule. They were citizens of the kingdom of God. And yet, they reverted to the ways of superstition, to the ways of the occult, to the ways of the demonic, to the ways of the satanic in the way they treated the ark. God had defended His ark on several occasions. You remember when strange fire was brought before the Lord by Aaron's two boys, Nadab and Abihu. God had struck them down. Several times people will try to mishandle that ark and God will strike them down, showing His holiness and His righteous judgment and His otherness from them. 
He is God. He is not a man. And so this is what they did. And they took that into the battle. And you know the story. And when the messenger came back to Shiloh to tell Eli what had happened, it was bad news all the way down the line. We went into battle. We carried the ark. We were defeated. We were slaughtered. The sons of Eli were slain. There goes your priesthood. And the ark was captured. There goes your altar of atonement. There goes the presence of the Lord. There goes your sole authority. There goes your only hope. It's captured. It's taken away. It's gone. Poor old Eli (laughs) had enough of a conscience left in him at age 98 after all the wickedness that he had witnessed. He was trembling for the ark of God because he knew it wasn't right what they had done. And he knew his wicked sons, and we chronicled their wickedness a few weeks ago, would not stand before the Lord in His holiness and His righteousness. The Israelites were slain that day because they were wicked in the sight of God. They had turned their back on their God. They had misused and misunderstood and misapplied everything that God had given them and revealed to them. They had trodden underfoot the sacred things. They had concluded in their heart that, you know, that's not so special. After all, God, we're the chosen people. We believe in once saved, always saved. We've got it sewed up. Now they rejected God. And in that rejection, God dealt out the punishment. And it was horrible. And when the news got back, Eli fell over and his neck broke and he died. He wasn't the only one to die that day. The precious, long-suffering, God-fearing, loving wife of Phineas' son was there. And when she heard the news being great with child, she squatted down and fell into labor and delivered the child. And died in the childbirth. But just before she died, she uttered a name for the baby boy that had just been born. And that name was Ichabod. The kabod is the glory of God, the weight of God that is so important in the life of Israel. They had treated as a light thing God's presence and God's commandments. In God's life-giving manna, they had in effect trampled underfoot Christ. Great abomination. And this daughter-in-law of Eli knew it. She knew her Bible, she knew her faith, she knew her God, and she knew her destiny. And she knew that it was the worst day the darkest day in the life of Israel to date. And she said the glorious departed. Her first statement was because the ark of the Lord has been captured and my, my husband's been killed and my father-in-law's been killed and this is a terrible day. But the re- repetition of her statement is very significant. When he got right down to it, she didn't mention 
the death of her father-in-law and the death of her husband. She just said the ark of God has been captured. Let me quickly apply this in two ways to our hearts and to our minds, I hope, for just a moment. All warfare is spiritual warfare. And what does it mean for the the ark of God, that which is sacred, that which is life-giving, that which is commanding, that which is, is fruitful in every way, that which has authority over us? What does it mean for it to be captured? For it to be in an enthraldom and taken away from its place and taken away from its honor and put in the midst of a pagan people who don't understand it, who don't know how to use it and don't know how to believe it and don't know how to live it. Well, that's happening in our country and in our land. The ark of God and the sacred things of God, the biblical worldview, the the standpoint of God talking about creation and redemption and sin and salvation and all that stuff has been captured in our society. Our minds have been captured through through our school systems from kindergarten through graduate schools. And there's some isms that have taken away the sacredness, the supernatural. We have it, I'll name at least three. You've heard of a man named Charles. Darwin destroyed the biblical view of creation, the biblical view of reality. No teleology, no eschatology, as God gives. Speaks of the survival of the fittest, natural selection, evolutionary hypothesis has taken away the sovereignty and the creator power of God. God does not have any rule over us. He has no right to us. He didn't create us. He doesn't exist. If he does exist in some remote, remote, remote sense, he certainly has nothing to do with our origins. We as a species are here, no thanks to any God. Another person that has hurt us a lot is a man named Sigmund Freud. He has destroyed the biblical view of the soul. That is that we are created in God's image and that we are a psychosomatic unity, that we have not only an earthly, a material, but we have an immaterial. We have a natural but a spiritual component to ourselves. We are special creations to God. He has denied the spiritual nature of the soul and has wrapped it all up in an id and an ego and a superego and other types of analysis. At war, high-level intellectual spiritual award against the thoughts and the mind of God. There's another man that's taken captive the ark of God and has destroyed sacred things. It's a man named Karl, Karl Marx. He has destroyed God's view of history where God starts and stops and controls and is providential over all of history and has developed a theory that is basically cyclical. There's the thesis, the antithesis, and then the synthesis. That's a pagan view of history. Not a biblical view of history and the ark of God and his economic view and everything that flows from it Labor, value, money, nature, the economics are not biblical economics, but they are satanic economics based upon all kinds of perverted falsehoods and a substituting of a determinism that is not divine, godly, biblical, Jehovah determinism. And he has taken captive our minds and our hearts now let me stop with this. i got to stop. When they took the ark, you know what they took? They took the mercy seat. And when the mercy seat's gone, there's no atonement. 
There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no priest. There's no shed blood. There's nothing that appeases God. There is nothing that reconciles man to God. There is nothing left. Ichabod, the glory has departed. The glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God. We beheld His glory full of grace and truth, the apostle said. And when they captured the ark, they took away Christ. And our culture is trying to take away Christ. And I'm going to give one little warning before I'm done, and that is don't let them take Christ away from you. Hold to Christ. Cling to Christ. Don't be presumptuous. Don't think, well, I made a decision when I was a teenager. That ought to last me a lifetime. No. Where do you stand? How do you face? How do you relate to Christ this very minute? Has the mercy seat gone out of your life or is it still there? Is it still there a place where you can in repentance and through the blood of Christ approach the holy sacred God and have Him smile on you with favor and blessing? Treat you as an obedient son for the sake of Christ when in fact you're not an obedient son. Give the righteousness and the salvation and the blessing and the glory that is His to you. Don't let them take the mercy seat.